All right, ladies, I'm going to draw your attention up here. We're just going to have teaching for about a half an hour, and then I will get you back to more discussion at your tables. Can I share with you one of my biggest fails as a homeschooling mom? When my kids were little, we decided to watch the life cycle of a butterfly. And so we went out and collected eggs from monarch butterflies, and we brought them home, put them in a jar, watched them grow into caterpillars, watched the caterpillar go into the pupa, and then finally come out as a butterfly. And so the glorious moment came where we were going to take Krispy Kreme the butterfly outside, and we, we all gathered around, and, and we thought, We'll just, you know, throw her up in the air and give her a little boost and watch her fly away, right? So we threw her up, and she just splat, landed right on the sidewalk. Just the worst sound you can imagine. (laughs) Because what we didn't know was that when butterflies come out of that pupa, their wings are very wet and very heavy. And so initially, it's, it's very laborious for this butterfly to start flapping its wings. And it looks like, oh, man, that's hard. And it's, it's hard to watch. But they need to do that to be able to pump the oxygen into their wings and eventually dry them out. And it takes a long time, apparently a lot longer than we had allowed for. But that's what a butterfly will need to do so that eventually it will be able to fly. That hard process it goes through is what's building the muscles it's going to need later. And sometimes it's God's will that we go through hard things. And that's not easy to hear. But you need to know that if God calls you to it, that he has a purpose in it, that he doesn't do things haphazardly. And so my hope for this evening is that you can walk away tonight knowing some things that God might be working for good even in the midst of suffering. I thought it might be helpful before we jump into this passage to talk about some different reasons for suffering because somebody could go through suffering and it could be for you know any million of different reasons. But I put together just three categories of suffering that I see pretty often in my own life. The first one would be suffering because of my own individual sin. Uh, And we see Peter even talk about this when he says, don't suffer as a murderer or an evildoer, right? If we sin, if we hurt someone, if I lie to my husband, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer in the consequence of that, but I'm also going to suffer in just the breakdown of our relationship. Second category of suffering might be global or endemic suffering. So ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we have been living in a fallen and broken world. Romans says that the whole creation groans and travails in pain. And so we see this in a number of ways Maybe it's natural disasters like hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. Maybe it's in things like disease, cancer. Maybe it's in just stuff breaking down constantly. Our cars need to be repaired. Our washing machine isn't working again. 
third category of suffering, and this is what Peter is addressing in the passage that you've been studying, is suffering as a Christian. You see, for most of history, being a Christian hasn't been safe. And for the first three centuries especially, every Christian knew that he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And so that's the group of people that Peter is writing to us. And so he says, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening. This isn't unusual to suffer as a Christian. When I was a little girl, one of my favorite toys was Puppy Surprise. And these toy marketers have got things figured out because a few years ago when they started making Puppy Surprise again, I went out right away and bought one for my daughter, okay? And so, and so here's the thing about Puppy Surprise. You buy this dog and she's pregnant and you take her home and you unvelcro her belly and out come puppies. Are you surprised? No, you're not surprised, because what else would it be? She's a dog. Of course she's going to have puppies. And so really the only variation is how many puppies are you going to get? But it says right on the box that you could get anywhere between three and four puppies. (laughs) But maybe it's the variation of what they're going to look like. They're all colored a little bit differently, and sometimes one of them is a runt. And so just like that, in suffering as a Christian, we're not surprised. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so the only variation is how much suffering will we have to endure and what will it look like? I think most of us know enough about Christianity that we aren't surprised when we suffer. We know that we don't fit into our culture, and we know what we're signing up for when we submit our lives to Christ as our king. And so this passage shows us that even in suffering, we can trust God because he's going to work good through our suffering. And when we look at the first verse of what we studied this week, it starts with a rhetorical question. And I love this question because it says, who then will harm you if you were devoted to what is good? And we all kind of know the answer should be no one. No one can harm me if I'm devoted to doing what is good. But yet you look at the context of this chapter and you see there is harm being done to these believers. So maybe the answer to the question should be everyone. Everyone's going to harm me for doing what is good. But what we see is that God has a way to turn our suffering into something that's going to result in praise and honor and glory in his kingdom. And so in that way, when they harm you, they are actually working good for you. So the answer is no one. 
No one can ultimately harm you when you are devoted to what is good. So much so that Peter actually says that we are blessed and that we should rejoice in our suffering. And that's some pretty strong language, and I think that's something he probably picked up from his friend Jesus when he was hanging out with him, because Jesus says something very similar. He says that blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So what are some of the good things that can be gained from suffering? The first one would be that it teaches us to regard Christ rather than our fears. Even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, why does it say in your heart regard Christ as holy? I think we need to be cautious in our culture today because we live in a Disney princess sort of day and age. And Lynette touched on this last week where to follow our heart means that we have totally checked our mind at the door and we're just going into all kinds of bad decisions and recklessness. But what we learned in week two of our study is that we're to set our hope completely on Christ first through our minds. The mind has to come before the heart. When the truth of God enters our mind first, then we can rightly embrace it in our heart. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says that our heart cannot embrace what our mind finds unintelligible. Or maybe you've heard Jen Wilkins' famous quote, that the heart cannot love what the mind does not understand. If we bypass the mind to get to our heart, then our faith is just built on warm feelings and emotions rather than true belief in Jesus. And we all know that warm feelings don't last. And they're certainly not going to hold up under persecution and suffering. And so, if we sanctify the Lord intelligibly in our hearts, then we can come to faith through an understanding of who he says he is in his word. And when we do that, we regard Christ as holy, even more than anything else that we fear, even in the midst of suffering. And when we do that, God will give us a testimony. And so that's another blessing to have a testimony that we can share. Peter says that we're to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, you could read that, and I've understood it like this in the past, where I thought that that meant that I needed to know every single answer to every question that anyone could ever have about the validity of the Bible or the differences between Christianity and Mormonism and Hinduism and Islam. And that sort of thinking could actually paralyze someone from ever sharing the gospel because you feel like you have to know everything. But that's not what this verse says. It says they want to know about the hope that is in 
you. Not the hope that you might gain after you take enough world religion classes, but the hope that's already in you. So what do I already know? What do I already love about Jesus? That's what we use as a tool for evangelism. And that's what we can use to give as a defense, as our hope. And see that our job is not to persuade the world. Only God can do that. Our job is simply to bear witness to our hope. That he came, that he died, that he rose, that he's coming again. And that everything that's negative right now is ultimately working for our good and his glory. Peter points out the example of Noah in this text. And I love that because there are actually some similarities between Noah's day and Peter's day. You see, Peter was writing to a small minority of people who who wanted to hear God's word, who wanted to live righteous lives. But they were living in the midst of a very wicked generation who didn't want to hear God's word and didn't want to receive it. And similarly, Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked generation. And so Noah, as he was building the ark for around a hundred years, he was being mocked, insulted. Because remember, a lot of Christian scientists think that it probably had never rained up to that point in history. And so the idea of a of flood was just inconceivable. And in Peter's day, these believers are being mocked and insulted as they bear witness to the truth of Christ. And they're going around talking about a final judgment, the end of the world that's going to happen. And that also seems pretty inconceivable, doesn't it? But in both cases, judgment is impending. And the judgment came in Noah's day as a flood. And the judgment will come, that Peter talks about, as the final judgment. And in both cases, the righteous will be saved. Noah was saved by entering the ark. And the believer is saved by entering the ark that is Christ. And so that's the hope that's in us. That's the testimony that we have to share. And that's something that our world desperately needs to hear. Another benefit or blessing that comes out of suffering as a Christian is that it does prompt us to love one another. The end of all things is near. That's that final judgment that's coming. And so therefore, be alert, be sober-minded for prayer. In other words, pay attention. Don't just go about your daily lives acting as if judgment isn't impending. And then he says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. So if the end of all things is near, he says we need to be alert, be sober-minded for prayer, and above all, maintain constant love for one another. Constant love that even overlooks a multitude of sins. Now what does that mean? Does that mean we just let people hurt us? Let people carry on in their sin and never 
do anything about it or say anything to them? No. Because that would actually be the most unloving thing that we could do, is to not take sin seriously. So I'd like to look at Colossians 3.12 to help with this passage, to see what does it mean to overlook sin. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with one another, even though we all say the wrong things at the wrong time. We all fail to show up for one another the way that we should. We all experience days where we're cranky or we're stressed out. Even then, we are to love one another and go forward and walk with one another in compassion and kindness and gentleness. Because being a Christian is hard. And certainly going through suffering is hard. So as fellow Christians, we need to be united with one another. Because where else can we go? Where else are you going to find the support and the encouragement you need if you're suffering as a Christian? I've heard of Christian community compared to a waterfall. Just like an outpouring of God's grace and blessing into our lives. So that people can actually be like the hands and feet of Jesus. And they can meet our needs or wrap their arms around us in a very tangible and physical way. And it's God's way of displaying his love for us. But here's the thing. You can stand under the waterfall of God's blessing with an umbrella. And so you could be in community but never actually receive the blessing of that community. If you're closed off, if you're constantly feeling like you're not good enough or that you wouldn't be accepted or that you're the only one going through something like this. Or maybe you're struggling with bitterness or a heart that is unwilling to forgive. This community takes vulnerability and forgiveness. And so as we put our umbrellas down, we can use the varied gifts that God gives us to serve one another. We can be the friend that will comfort a sister when she comes to us and she says, I've just lost my job because of my faith. We can be the friend that when a sister comes to us and says, I'm struggling, my marriage is falling apart because my husband isn't a believer. And we can be a prayer warrior for her. Those are all varied gifts. We can be the encourager when a sister is just tired of fighting the good fight. We can be the friend who speaks wisdom and discernment in hard situations. All of these are gifts. Wisdom, discernment, encouragement, prayer. So if we love one another constantly and we use the gifts he's given us to serve one another, and then he says that we're to be hospitable to one another. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think I get the idea of what is hospitality confused with entertaining. And so I want to read for you this article from Jen Woken because she does such a great job of um, just showing the difference between those two things. She says this. She says, entertaining involves setting the perfect tablescape 
after an exhaustive search on Pinterest. It chooses a menu that will impress, and then it frets its way through each stage of preparation. It requires every throw pillow to be in place, every cobweb to be eradicated, every child to be neat and orderly. It plans extra time to don the perfect outfit before the first guest touches the doorbell on the seasonally decorated doorstep. And should any element of the plan fall short, entertaining perceives the entire evening to have been tainted. Entertaining focuses attention on self. Hospitality involves setting a table that makes everyone feel comfortable. It chooses a menu that allows FaceTime with guests instead of being chained to the stovetop. It picks up the house to make things pleasant, but it doesn't feel the need to conceal evidences of everyday life. It sometimes sits down to dinner with flour in its hair. It allows the gathering to be shaped by the quality of conversation rather than the cuisine. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts, feelings, pursuits, and preferences of its guests. It's good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. Hospitality focuses attention on others. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course. Hospitality burns the rolls because it was listening to a story. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong, where hospitality savors what was shared. Entertaining, exhausted, said, it was nothing, really. Where hospitality says, it was nothing, really. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. But the two practices can look so similar because two people can set the same beautiful tablescape and serve the same gourmet meal, one with a motive to impress and the other with a motive to bless. So how can we know the difference? Only the second would invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to pull up a chair and sip from the stemware. Our motives are revealed not just in how we set our tables, but in who we invite to join us at the feast. Entertaining invites only those it will enjoy. Hospitality takes all comers. So we can love each other constantly. And we can use our very gifts to serve one another. And we can be hospitable to one another because we need each other. So hopefully you've seen some good things or some blessings that God could be working through Christian suffering. But I do want to point you to the very last verse of our passage. Because this verse reminds us that we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. That you can know that as you trust God in the midst of your suffering, your story will end in triumph. Because the ultimate example of suffering as a Christian was Jesus. And though he suffered, right now, it says that he has ascended into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So as we face the pain and the adjustment and the 
and the mistreatment as Christians, we can remember that outcome, that Christ's story ends in triumph, and so our story will also end in triumph. But Peter's writing to people who are in the middle of their suffering, and they don't know how their time on earth will end. And neither do we, but we can have that hope for eternity. So maybe you're in the midst of your suffering tonight. Maybe you're like Daniel, who's just about to be thrown into the lion's den, and you don't know how God will rescue you. Or you're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are being threatened with a fiery furnace before they ever know the outcome. There in the suffering, God can display his power. And he can write our testimonies. So that one day we can be like Joseph and we can say about our suffering, they intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So when we do that, when we look for the good that our faithful God is working in the midst of our suffering, our suffering can be a means to bring him glory. And so we can rejoice and be blessed in that.